That's 1 John, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And now the question that we have before us uh, this morning is this. Uh, let's say that we have been listening to 1 John, John's first epistle. Uh, let's say that we have been reassured Let's say that he has persuaded us that we don't need to listen to the world or to those who speak from the world. Let's say that we are confident that we are called the children of God, and so we are. Is there anything that we need to do? It has to be said that to this point, 1 John has not been an especially activist letter. I just think of the imperatives as we've gone through the argument so far. Uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, do not love the world. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Verse 27, abide in him. Again, verse 28, abide in him. Chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, let no one deceive you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, do not be surprised. Track with those imperatives. They're not very activist, are they? They are hardly a mandate for decisive, revolutionary, world-shaking action. I put them all together and what do they add up to? Stay where you are. Don't be shaken. Abide. Remain. But is that the end of the matter? Is 1 John just reassurance? a pep talk that ultimately resolves into, as you were, 
Is there any outbox? 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And it is the opening of the final big section of 1 John. And there have, I think, been two main sections so far. It's a letter that divides into three. At the beginning of the letter, from chapter 1 and verse 1 through to 2, verse 14, John established the big categories, the things that the apostles said and are writing in the light of what God has done in Christ. And then over the last three weeks, we have been working through the central section of the book from chapter 2 and verse 15 through to 4, verse 6. And John has turned from that apostolic witness, the things that the apostles saw and are now writing, to the group that we've been calling the departed, a group who formerly belonged to the family, but have now been speaking and writing against them. And John's big aim through this central section of the letter has been to show that whatever their claims, this group just speak from the world. Because they're antichrists, they have aligned with themselves with everything that is wrong with the world. Once you oppose Jesus, you align yourself with everything that is wrong with the world. Lawlessness, murderous hatreds, deceit in the verses we just had read, false prophecy, the works of the devil. It is all reassurance. Don't let them deceive you. Test the spirits. Do not believe every spirit. Don't listen to them. They are from the world. They speak from the world. And God's family don't listen to the world. They listen to the apostles. But from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, we're in a new section, a section that reaches forward into growing confidence and I think worldwide mission and victory. And it begins the way that it's going to go on. 27 times in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, 3 to 5, verse 5, John uses the same word or variations of the same words, the words love. That is what he wants us to do. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, let us love one another. Well, that's our main point this morning. And three subpoints. Beloved, let us love one another, firstly, because love is like God's. Verse seven, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The fundamental point is really very straightforward. Love is the right outbox because love is godly. Uh, William Shakespeare, uh, the playwright who apparently came here sometimes, famously wrote that to err is human, to forgive is divine. And I think that for the most part, with one or two nuances, I could get on board with that. But John says, actually, the thing that is really quintessentially divine is love. Before God forgave anyone, he loved on the one hand, love is from God. Of course, you could say that all things are from God because God is the only uncreated creator. Of course, love is from God. Everything's from God. 
But I think John is actually making a point here about the story of the Bible. How did the Bible story of love, God's covenant love, his hesed, how did that story of love get going? And the love of God for his people, the love of his people for God, their love for one another, it starts, it, it always starts with God. It was only because God set his love upon Abraham, upon Joseph, upon Israel, upon the world, that this sort of love is in the world at all. That's why the second half of verse 7 can say what it says. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you see real love, covenant love, authentic love, if we love, it must be a reflection. It must be because we have been born of God and have come to know him. Any love here, here, is the ripple of the stone that God cast into the pond. And if you were to find a community where that kind of love were present, well, it would be the sign that God had been there. On the one hand, love is from God. But on the other, God is love, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And that statement, God is love, it's not the first statement of its kind in 1 John. You might remember back in 1 John chapter 1, and he told them that the message that he had been proclaiming from the beginning was that God is light. Well, here's the compliment. The God who is light is also love. Love is not just something that God does, it is something he is. It is in his very nature. I suppose the point is that God has never had to learn to love or make a decision to try to be a bit more loving. Now, we do, right? I got married a little over 13 years ago, and I am still learning to love my wife properly. I still mess it up. And my older son is now nine years old, and I'm still learning to love him properly. I often mess it up. When it comes to love, we all wear the L plate. It's not the L plate of love, the L plate of learner, not God's. Before all worlds, Father, Son, and Spirit were united in a fellowship of light and love. God is love. And so, verse 7, let us love one another. Love is like God's. So here is John writing to this group of Christians, and he's reassured them. He has dispatched those who are unsettling them with the, how should we describe this, the theological roundhouse kick of 1 John chapters 2 to 4. And you might think that he's done, that he's ready to sign off, to put his letter in the post. Get that reassurance out to them. They need to read it. But John doesn't think he's done yet at least not until he said this. What he wants them to do, what the Holy Spirit wants us to do, if we're reassured, is to love one another. And not just because love is like God in the abstract. Secondly, we're to love one another because love reflects what God has done. Love reflects what God has done, verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, in lots of ways, this is just a development of verse 7. Verse 7, love is from God. It was God's initiative to set his love on the family that he chose. He starts with where love comes from. Love is from God. But now he traces through to where love goes. Where love goes is to do something, to send his son. The love that God sets on a people in the beginning has been made manifest among us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we should live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Actually, that verse, verse 10, it's, it's kind of a Bible overview in one sentence, isn't it? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, we can read the Old Testament, but that he loved us. Again, read the Old Testament and New Testament, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love that only Christians have really seen. The idea that love is important is hardly a uniquely Christian perspective, is it? And the world thinks that love is important. Non-Christian Israel thinks that love is important. Everyone thinks love is important. But the thing that John has seen, the thing that we through his eyes have seen, is love made manifest. If you want to see the love of God, don't look at what people say. Don't look at what people do. Love at what, look at what God did. Look at the Lord Jesus. In this is love. God sent his only son so that we might have life. And the key word is that word propitiation in chapter 4 and verse 10. It's a word that comes out of the Old Testament tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And we already had it back in 1 John chapter 1 a few weeks ago. It means something like a, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Uh, we were guilty. We were trapped in death. We were locked into sin. We deserved God's judgment. We were doomed to die. But God sent his son into the world so that we might live. He did it by being a propitiation. He took our place. He bore the judgment, death, that we deserve. He was the sacrifice that died our death, and with our death died, and our sins forgiven, we can live. Do you know what? If you have never grasped this, it is so foundational. You deserve death. The Lord Jesus deserved life. He died your death. He died my death so that we might live. And of course, there are all sorts of implications to this. Joy, freedom, assurance, no more guilt, boldness in confessing your sins. And John's already drawn some of those out in chapter one. But here 
in chapter 4, the focus is on God. What does this propitiation mean? Well, it is the public manifestation of the love of God. It is the length to which God's love went. This is love. He didn't just set his love on the family of Abraham. He sent his son. He didn't just call the family of Abraham out of Chaldea. He came to get them. He didn't just come to seek them. He laid down his life. It's extraordinary. Um, I've been reading through one of John's other books, uh, John's Gospel in my quiet times um, over the last few weeks. And I've reached the crucifixion um, in John chapter 19. It's so mucky. And it's just awful, actually, John, John chapter 19. And of course, as, as we all know, Peter, um, Jesus' best friend, um, denies him. And as you all know, Judas, um, Judas betrays him. But what really got me as I was reading this through the other day um, was the other participants, and Pilate, and the Jewish leaders, and the soldiers. You know, you get the sense that as much as the Jewish leaders hate Jesus, and they do hate Jesus, I think, in John 19, at least half of their agenda in John 19 is to try to get Pilate over the barrel. And Pilate, well, he takes every moment he can in John 18 and 19 to score points against the Jewish leaders. And he lets his soldiers dress Jesus as a king, not mostly because he wants to mock Jesus, but mostly because he wants to mock them. And he makes a sign that says that Jesus is the king of the Jews, again, not mostly because he wants to mock Jesus, but mostly because he wants to mock them. He has Jesus flogged, not because he really hates him, but because he can. The soldiers are there at the foot of the cross, the Lord Jesus dying above them. And do you know what they see? Mostly, they see the opportunity to refresh their wardrobe. I mean, think about that. They are putting the Son of God to death, the Son of God. And they don't even know it. All they see is an opportunity to make a quick buck or to make their political opponents look a bit stupid. It is so shameful for Jesus. It's so humiliating to be dying on the cross and not even see, not even hate it. He did it for love. He did it so that you might live. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here is John writing to this church. And how do we move forward? Where do you go from here? Uh, look, really look, he says. Yes, you can be confident you're the children of God, but look, really look, whose family is it that you have been called to belong to? Because of who God is, because of what he has done, beloveds, 
lets us love one another. And let us love one another, thirdly, because love shows that God is with us. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I think John is just following through the sequence here. He began at the start. Love is from God. It was his initiative to set his love on his people. Um, And then... Um, he's kind of unfolded that into action. He sent his son, and the Lord Jesus came into the world. But if you imagine this is an arrow, where does that arrow end? Because in fact, the love of God does not end at the cross. That's the high point, but it's not the end. God's love ends in us. And that, I think, is the point of that word perfected in verse 12. It's not so much that God's love is flawless, so that the opposite of perfected would be imperfect, it's that his love is finished. It has reached its goal. The opposite of perfected would be incomplete. You see, the end of the story of God's love is not the cross. It is the thing that the cross achieves, a people who have been rescued and who therefore love each other. At the end, the goal of God's love is a cross-bought church. And so as we love one another, we begin to see that that has happened. A family of Christians all over the world is that God is achieving the thing that he sent his love into the world to do. Now that on its own is a reason to love one another. It is the effect that God's love was sent into the world to produce. But more than that, verse 12, it is the sign that God is amongst us. If we love one another, God abides in us. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It is so striking. You cannot see God. But you can know that God is with you if you love one another. And many of you will know that I used to live and work in Singapore, and two of my three children were born there. And at some point in our time there, um, I remember there being a bit of a kerfuffle about a a church. Um, What had happened was that during this church's meeting, um, I guess a bit like this, but whilst they were singing, someone had taken a photograph. And they'd taken this photograph of the church singing. um, And then when they looked at the photograph or developed it or whatever you do with a digital camera, I don't know, um, they saw that as well as the people singing, kind of obscuring about half of the photograph was a sort of flash or discoloration or something of light that looked a little bit like an angel. And this church was just enormously encouraged. I mean, isn't this incredible that here we are singing and and there's an angel that's with us as we're singing? Now, leave aside your cynicism for just a moment. Assume that they really had snapped a photo of an angel and it wasn't just a glitch. You could see how they might be encouraged, couldn't you? Look, of all of the religious meetings in Singapore, of all the churches in Singapore, we are the ones that the angels choose to come to. We're the ones where the angels worship. Surely God is amongst us. How do you know that God is with us? Well, not by anything you can do on a camera, because John says no one has ever seen God's. 
Another time, a student came to a meeting that I was speaking at. Actually, it was a bit random and slightly insulting. Um, he was there for the first few songs, um, and then just as I got up to speak, he left um, and went out. Um, but he came back later for supper, um, and he said that um, he was really encouraged by his time with us. I was like, well, that's great, because I wasn't by your time with me. But anyway, um, and I was really sure that God was amongst you. Um, and the student who was talking to him said, oh, that's encouraging. How did you know? How did you know that God was amongst us? Well, he said, when we were singing, my leg shook. And actually, I looked it up. There's a whole website on this, um, uh, the meaning of shakes. And um, how would you know? How would you know that God abides with his people? You can't see him. How would you know that God is present and at work here? Well, as we've been working through 1 John, there's a few things you might look for. You might look for faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ. You might look for loyalty to the apostolic words. And whoever is from God listens to us, John says. You might look for a people who confess their sins. But is there anything more visible, anything that you can actually see? Yes, John says. You cannot see God. But when you see Christians loving one another, you know that God is there. God's love is achieving its effect. Actually, it's true. Um, my wife, Jenny, she made me promise to add one more Singapore story to balance out the others in case you got the wrong impression. Um, so whilst we were in Singapore, um, a couple of years into our time there, uh, our little girl got very poorly. Um, I'd just been saying, actually, a few weeks before that, that um, I felt that the church that we were in in Singapore, it talked a lot about family, and all of their notice sheets said family this, family this, family everything, um, but it didn't really feel like a family. It felt like in Singapore, church was church and family was family, and the two didn't really overlap. Um, but then our little girl got poorly, and we were 10,000 kilometers from home, um, but instantly the church flooded in. Um, and all of our bills were paid for, and a whole stream of people came to visit us. Um, actually, they gave us a, a copetiam, like a prepaid copetiam card um, for the uh, cafeteria in the hospital where we were staying. And it had so much money on it that two years later, when we actually left Singapore, I still hadn't spent it all, <laughs> all the credits. Um, when we love each other, and when we love each other inadequately, reflectively, impersonally, imperfectly, that is the sign that the love that God sent into the world in Christ is working. Uh, love shows that God is with us. And so, John says, because it is like God, and because of what God has done, and because it's the goal of God's work and the sign that he's at work amongst us, beloveds, let us love one another. This is what you should do next. What now? Love one another. You see, 1 John is not an as-you-were letter. It would be easy, wouldn't it, to think that it should be. John is writing to this church, and they are wobbling, and they're losing confidence. And some of them are tempted to quietly wander off. And John has said, no, abide. You're in the right family. And maybe you'd think that that would be it. Great. Smiley face. We were right all along, as you were. But there is an outbox. If this is the right family, if this is the right fellowship, you should love one another. Actually, it's the obvious counterpoint when you think about it to loving the world. And so here is a church that is wobbling, tempted to put a foot into both camps. And here is a twofold decision 
Do not love the world, but do love each other. In other words, this is what assurance, confidence looks like in practice. I am going to be all in. This is God's family. This is where I stand. So let's not hold back. Let's not waver at the edge. Let's not hover near the door, trying to work out whether we really want to stay or not. I am here to stay. I'm going to love the family. Of course, this is why church hopping is a very poor long-term strategy. Now, I'm conscious that we're still at a point in the year where there are a lot of people who are still making up their mind about whether they want to join us here at St. Helens. And of course, if you're thinking about where to go to church, you might want to spend a few weeks deciding and visit a few, fair enough. But that is a one or a two-week thing. It's not a strategy for a year in London. A church is not a show that you turn up to to enjoy the performance. Church is not a class that you come to in the hope that you might learn something. It is family, one expression of the worldwide family of the living Lord Jesus Christ. If you decided that you don't want to drift into the world during your time here in London, and I really hope you have decided that, then you need to do the opposite. You need to love the family. And that does mean actually joining a church, being part of a small group, somewhere that you can invest in your brothers and sisters. Do you know, whether you choose to come to St. Helens or go to All Souls or Euston, or actually any one of a number of other churches is really much less important than that you go somewhere, somewhere that you're known, somewhere where people know you, where you're able to love people and be part of the family. If you want not to drift into the world, beloved, he says, let us love one another. And of course, you could broaden the points. All of us, let us love one another. It's not a beat up. The point is not that we're not very loving. And so we should really sort ourselves out. Now, that is nonsense. It's nonsense here. I could give any one of a dozen examples from the last 10 days about how I have seen real Christian love in action at St. Helens. And John wasn't beating up the church that he was writing to either, was he? They were loving each other. And he says, good, great. It's wonderful that you definitely love each other. Now love one another. The Lord's not beating us up either. Good, great. You really do love each other. Now love one another. It's not a beat up, but it is good, isn't it, to reflect and to take pause and to just ask the question, yes, this is the family that I want to belong to. This is the brotherhood of the life laid down. I am glad to be Christian. I am glad to be here. So how can I serve my family better this week? How could I love my brothers and sisters better today? I wonder if you were to ask that question right now and say, what could I do today to better love my family? Would you be able to answer it? How would you answer it? And why don't you do it? Even if this is only your second week with us here at St. Helens, it's not too early to ask, how can I seek to love my Christian brothers and sisters here? 
And if you've been here for 50 years, it's not too late to ask, are there new ways that I could seek to serve my Christian brothers and sisters here? Are there new people that I could seek to invest in? Well, this is the outbox. That's where John goes next. Because it is the right thing to do, because it reflects the God who loves us, because it reflects the God who sent his son for us, because it is the goal towards which God's love in the world has been working, because it's the sign that God is with us, because it's the way that you put your confidence that you're in the right family into practice. Actually, as I think we'll see next week, because it's the way to grow that confidence, here is what you should do next. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloveds, let us love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for the family that we have come to belong to. And we thank you so much for you, our Father, the great God of love. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and your love made manifest in the world. We praise you that in your very great kindness, this is who you are. And we thank you that we can be confident this is the family that we belong to, that we, as we come to the Lord Jesus, that we are your children and that we do belong, that we've overcome the world, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would help us by your spirit who dwells with us to love one another. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.